are listening to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we clarify distinctions between Mormon and Creative Christian thought. I'm Brendan, here with Sky Sky. And uh, yeah, how was your week, man? I'm all right. Anything nothing to report. exciting? <laughs> you know, reading. I've got some old books here. How many, how many books do you think you own? Oh, I don't know. I don't, we were just having this conversation. With, I am uh, not sure. Another brother yeah. here, Ed Romine. He's got a big library, too. Yeah. This one is from 1943. Is the size of the library that you inherited less than, greater than, or equal to what is currently around us in my in my study? I would say it's probably... Little less than half of what's in here, so maybe this side, or maybe a little less than this side. Uh-huh. So, half, yeah, at the most, yeah, which is it's still a lot of books, yeah. <laughs> I mean, a lot of commentaries. You, you come in here with a new book every week, so I, I can well, imagine. Yeah. So, you're what you have <laughs> not inherited, less than, greater than, or equal to the sum total of what is around us right now. That's more, so you. Have half that you inherited yeah. plus the books that you have acquired on your own. Yeah. So you're filling up a good two rooms this size. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. It's it's a problem. Uh, maybe a <laughs> maybe a good problem depending on how you look at it. But yeah, you got a book addiction. I do. Yeah. Book buying addiction. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's. Yeah, mood management. Because I'm super healthy. <laughs> it's like some people do retail therapy. I get it. I it's hard to not buy books. Yeah, honestly. Oh, it's just, I hear it. I'm like, that's so interesting. Oh, yep. that's so niche. Yep. Or it's a super expensive book, so you got to check it often to see if somebody you know yeah doesn't know what they have and post it for half the price. Yep. My my problem is when when there's just there's just a good enough discount on it. Mm, yeah. To justify it, it's like. Which for me that that number is you know if, if I'm seeing thirty percent off or more I'm mm-hmm. I'm pretty tempted like oh yeah this is this would be good yes so but I I use my books you know my mm-hmm. my father in law is a is a uh, tradesman he he uh, fixes things or you know kind of does renovation projects things like that for people and he's always buying new tools you know he's got a mm-hmm. he's got a tool buying problem. <laughs> and he's always telling me about a new tool he bought that does this or that. Now, you know, you go into Home Depot, there's a million tools and there are. they're all useful for different things. And I, I do projects and when I do projects, I, there's always a tool that I've got to get that I don't have yet because it does a particular thing that I need to do that I haven't done before. And so I buy a tool for it. Mm-hmm. That's books. Yeah. You know, it's like I use all these books in different ways. I don't read them all cover to cover, but mm-hmm. I do use them and uh find references and that's why i won't buy books if they don't have a good index i don't know about you but i'm just like it makes okay. me sick when books don't have a good index i'm like Seriously. come on people you yeah. gotta have an index <laughs> anyway so that yeah nothing no just a lot of prep for this one yeah this is uh, a huge one for them and I, I must compliment them i think this is the best organized lesson Thus far this year. Yeah. Particularly in the seminary manual. Yeah, and how imagine, it follows this one. Yeah. Yeah. And just 
you know, instead of this verse and then that verse in the next chapter. Right. It, it, 14. A little more focused. 15. Yes. Yeah. Well, it probably helps that they're only covering three chapters versus yeah, like it's, 10, it's, you know, <laughs> something like the that. Entire so. epistles we're going to get yeah. to. Or yeah. Two epistles in one week. Yeah. Two epistles in one week. Wow. Uh, Colossians and Philippians Fli- are together. <laughs> Which uh, I just now got out of chapter one in Colossians. When did you start? It took nine weeks. Nine weeks to get out chapter of chapter one. one. So yeah. <laughs> anyway, how long were you in Galatians? Uh, I don't even know. Probably probably twenty weeks. Now yeah. maybe more. I don't know. Yeah, one week. Galatians. Yeah. We'll see. Colossians right now though is shaping out to be a really slow go it's just so hard to, dense yeah so it is good. really dense so okay well since you got a lot i guess we better get on into yeah, it let's do it so we are looking at first corinthians 14 to 16 and the dates that the lds church will be covering this in their wards is september 4th to the 10th and the subtitle of this one which i didn't see this verse in particular really focused on in the uh, manual, so it's kind of interesting, but the uh, subtitles, God is not the author of confu- confusion, but of yeah. peace. And uh, no- nothing really different to report in the teacher preparation sections here. So let's just jump right into the teach the doctrine. And they do divide this, as you already mentioned, Skylar and uh, uh, a couple of just clear sections uh, in the Sunday school manual. They don't even cover chapter 16. It really is just mm-hmm. chapter 14 and chapter 15 in the Sunday school manual. And the majority of what we're going to be focused on this uh, in this episode is first Corinthians 15, because yep. they are pulling a lot out of that. And of course, uh, you may know that First Corinthians 15 verse 29 is the well-known in LDS thought life and culture, uh, baptism for the dead verse. And so we're going to talk through that. But then also chapter 15 is a lot on the resurrection. And yep. so we're going to get into, again, their uh, theology of the the uh, the next state, I guess. And uh, that'll be interesting as well. So um, the first section on chapter 14, which chapter 14 is just Paul's instructions on prophecy, prophecy in tongues, uh, I, you know, I think that ultimately their understanding of it is tracking with what Paul is getting after in the text. And uh, their subtitle is, When We Gather Together, We Should Seek to Edify One Another. And I actually give them credit to that. I think in chapter 14, that is what Paul is getting at primarily, is you ought to be thinking about how to, well, number one, glorify God in your worship, but to be edifying to each other, building each other up in a knowledge of God. And so some of the disorderly practices that were going on with the charismatic gifts and you know speaking in tongues and things like that, Paul's just saying, this, is, this isn't useful. This isn't helpful to anyone. No one's being edified because they can't understand what you're saying. And in order to be edified and built up in the word, you need to be able to understand what's being said here. And uh, so... That's uh, that's what's going on in chapter fourteen, and they're pretty much on point with that. What, what should our goal be when we gather together? And uh, of course, they're trying to get members to think about edifying each other. Now, in the way that we would expect, they end that particular subsection with the sentence: "They could also share experiences in which they felt edified by something a class member shared." And so, it is just kind of this therapeutic group that ends up. 
uh, taking center stage and just kind of sharing moments and uh, you know, it, it really is a form of therapy in, in a way. And of course, we've talked about some of the the uh, similarities uh, in that to a lot of uh, evangelical Christian circles too that we would equally criticize and what uh, Christian Smith uh, determined or defined as uh, therape- moral therapeutic, moralistic therapeutic deism, uh, which is the primary religion in America, according to him and his team of researchers who did a survey. And we, we brought that up in the, in the podcast before, but uh, that is what you see in Mormonism. It is a religion that is primarily just moralistic teaching. It's for your therapeutic good. It's a chance to share and, and hear and listen and be heard and, you know, kind of ends up feeling like an A group in some ways in the way that they're encouraging these sorts of sharing of experiences and things like that. And we're not belittling that there that there can't be a place for that somewhat in the context of learning. I mean, we think discussion is good. Our approach is just always going to be more like, let's talk about what the text says. And then after we've done that, try to apply it to our lives. Whereas what we see frequently done in these manuals is, again, going straight to uh, the sharing piece on personal experiences and things like that without ever dealing with the text itself. So, um, yeah. Do you want to make any comments on chapter 14 or we're pretty much all in 15 here yeah, is, is where so, I'm at. So yeah, the, it is quoted 91 times as of 2015 in the history of general conference. And it, it has been used before to warn against either teaching or accepting false doctrine and it's been a basis of assuring uh, the members that there is only one true church on the face of the earth that has the fullness of the gospel. And uh, so that's how it's historically been used. And there's not much of that here. Yeah. Uh, so, yep. The, this uh, Sunday, or sorry, the seminary manual, they spend all their days in chapter 15. They don't even spend a day on 14. Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay, well, let's get into chapter 15 then. Um, so su- the subtitle of this section and the curriculum is Because Jesus Christ Was Resurrected, We Will All Be Resurrected. And uh, then they go on and say, how can you use Paul's testimony in 1 Corinthians 15 to strengthen your class members' testimonies of the resurrection? One way could be to divide the class into two groups and ask one group to look in 1 Corinthians 15. 15 for the consequences we would face if Jesus Christ had not been resurrected. The other group would look for blessings we could receive because of his resurrection. Again, there you see a very self-centered way of biblical interpretation, right? Um, Because the question is, what would the consequences for you be? And what would the blessings for you be? Rather than just factually talking about what Paul says and the historical grammatical context, it it instantly is turned toward the self and thinking about your blessings and and consequences. Now, I do just question, this is one of those uh, places where when you read through 1 Corinthians 15, if you do it from that lens, um, it, it really can be a somewhat helpful thing. And so this is one of those situations where I'm like, it would be helpful to be in a class and hear what the responses here are. Yeah. Uh, because what are the consequences uh, if uh, you don't get this right? And in particular, <laughs> I, I mean, I think of, uh, of verse 17 as being one of the main uh, verses. And, you know, if you're LDS and you're listening, I, I highlight this, you know, when you're, <laughs> when you're there, like, I'm just curious what, 
What do you think about verse 17 where it says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins? What, what does that mean? Because LDS interpretation on the resurrection typically has to do with what the subtitle says, because Jesus Christ was resurrected, we will all be resurrected. And that's what they want to sit on and focus on. Well, what about the resurrection as it relates to salvation from your sins? And Paul's saying, if you if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You, you got no reason to trust in him. And you're still in your sins. So how does the resurrection relate to us not being in our sins anymore? Um, that's a fascinating question that, you know, obviously we would say, yes, the resurrection is essential to us knowing that Christ conquered sin and death so that we are, we are confident in, in the forgiveness of our sins. We're not in our sins anymore because Jesus has saved us from them. He paid the debt. The debt was accepted, payment accepted, ransom paid. We're no longer under condemnation for our sins. We have the confidence of forgiveness and we have full confidence in glorification, not on the basis of what we're going to accomplish, but on the basis of Jesus's death and resurrection and, and ascension. And, uh, and so that, that's the, that's the idea that Paul is getting at there. Uh, but that verse of course, isn't really dealt with, but it could be based on this question. You're supposed yeah. to work through this and you're supposed to say, well, what would the consequences be if Jesus didn't, didn't resurrect from the dead? Well, don't miss this one. Right. This is this is an essential one to the truth of the gospel, the gospel that we've been preaching all year. Uh, they go on and make reference to uh, Christofferson quote. As I said, this could be helpful in this process to to look through this Christofferson quote. So I'm going to go and jump there. It's in the additional resources and read this. It says, "Consider for a moment." This is uh, Christofferson. Consider for a moment the significance of the resurrection in resolving once and for all the true identity of Jesus of Nazareth and the great philosophical contests and questions of life. If Jesus was in fact literally resurrected, it necessarily follows that he is a divine being. No mere mortal has the power in himself to come to life again after dying. Because he was resurrected, Jesus cannot have been only a carpenter, a teacher, a rabbi, or a prophet. Because he was resurrected, Jesus had to have been a God, even the only begotten Son of the Father. And then he gives some quotes here. He says, therefore, what he taught is true. God cannot lie. Therefore, he was the creator of the earth, as he said. Therefore, heaven and hell are real, as he taught. Therefore, there is a world of spirits, which he visited after his death. Therefore, he will come again, as the angel said, and reign personally upon the earth. Therefore, there is a resurrection and a final judgment for all. Fascinating to hear him say Jesus is the creator well, of, of all the earth. Yeah, and hell is real. Yep. Where on their charts do they have that? Yeah. Where's hell? Yep. Oh, yeah, it's not there. That, we'll get to that. Nowhere. There's, yeah. They don't have hell on any of their charts or descriptions. Yep. That is fascinating, though. That just the the uh, disparity that's often there with <laughs> saying, well, heaven and hell are real. Okay, well, what is hell then? And who goes there? Um, right. Or are you like, why would you say that? Yeah. And it, there's a bunch of these just in this included section. He is a divine being, he's a God. Yep. That's a second God. That's polytheism. But they wouldn't say that. They just never would affirm monotheism. No mere mortal at this stage, right? Or yep. on this earth, 
His father did it before him. His father did it before him. His father did it before him. No mention of wife or wives or, you know, they'll just do it through the vague heavenly parents thing. They don't believe he's the creator of the earth. They believe he's the organizer of the earth yeah. with, uh, with help. Yep. And as a helper to the father. No chart in their plan of salvation. I have my missionary chart here. No hell there. And then also reign personally again on the earth. There's no sense of emphasizing him reigning now. Mm-hmm. And then final judgment for all. So it's yes, but what does that mean? Yeah. And they, yeah. So a lot of that stuff we'll get into. Yep. I, I think one thing to say too, just really quick is the way they talk about it is this chapter just generally is very, of course, um, triumphalistic, you could say. And um, basically seeing Paul as addressing everything that they can use to promote their theological system. So here's one list, one scholar, BYU scholar, um, the three degrees of glory, the teaching power of the Holy Ghost, the purpose and continuity of the family unit, baptism for the dead. They really like to proof text 1 Corinthians. Uh, that was more than just chapter 15. Mm-hmm. But notice what they don't focus on is anything Paul makes central. So David Ridges, right, he says... Among other things, Paul wrote of resurrection for everyone, baptism for the dead, and the three degrees of glory to the Corinthian saints. It is interesting and significant to realize that these saints in the early church had the same true doctrines as we have. And yet, nothing, and I looked, nothing drew attention to the creedal formula at the start. Yeah. Right? Yep. <laughs> they, they, so they're going to focus on this verse that, as we'll get to, um, is, you know, it's, yeah. You know, near impossible to know exactly what is meant. Yep. But they don't bring attention to this creedal formula uh, from three to eight or nine. That's right. That is actually what united the early church yep. and what unites Christians today. Yep. That's right. Uh, a clear declaration of the gospel that Paul preaches and yeah. that saves. And uh, that that's just a miss in all of this. Um, so they do go on, and let's go ahead and, and hit this first because this is in the manual here, and then we'll we'll hit the degrees of glory uh, second. But um, we get into the last point under this subsection, and this is the end of the curriculum for the week. And they say here, 1 Corinthians 15 is one of the few places in the scriptures where baptisms for the dead are mentioned. Perhaps class members could share the joy they have experienced while performing baptisms or other ordinances for their ancestors. What might Paul have referred? To, why might Paul have referred to baptisms for the dead as evidence of the resurrection? If it would help to discuss why baptisms for the dead are necessary, see Gospel Topics article "Baptisms for the Dead: The Video Glad Tidings: A History of Baptisms for the Dead." Uh, which explains how this principle was restored in our day. All right, before I try to fill out some evangelical interpretation, why don't you just explain for us, Skylar, what baptisms for the dead are and uh, why the LDS Church practices these things? So they, it's in the temple, um, DNC 124 says this was instituted before the foundation of the world. And it's an ordinance, it's a priesthood ordinance in which um, even younger people, that you can be a younger age and do this in the temple um, as well. So, 
you know, 12, 13, 14, you can go do this activity. Typically, it's on the ground level or underneath. They have a baptismal font on, you know, typically like, you know, 12 ox or whatever. And, um, and then it's someone having the priesthood authority, um, baptizing by immersion, people for... Um, preferably your own dead ancestors. But basically you have a bunch of people that submit names to the church uh, from their genealogical research. And so you can go and just be baptized for, you know, people um, that have died and lived before. And, and so it's a proxy, it's a vicarious um, rite that is supposed to give an opportunity to people who didn't have the opportunity in life to accept the LDS gospel. Um, so the way they justify it is, of course, baptism is absolutely required for salvation, and you need a physical body to be baptized. And so therefore, if you didn't get a chance in your physical body, somebody with a physical body must do it for you, but they have to have the right authority in the right place, all that. Um, and then ultimately, um, and this should be said, they do think that the person you're baptized for needs to accept it. That you know, agency is, agency is still a non-negotiable in the system. So someone can choose, but it's about giving them the opportunity to accept or reject, you know, what that ordinance can provide. Yeah. So. <clears throat> the idea is that it's happening on this side of the veil, they'll say, in this world, and that on the other side of the veil, in the spirit world, you have basically the equivalent of the LDS church doing missionary work, preparing people to receive these ordinances. So it's very much a way that they see as binding the living and the dead, binding families across generations. They lean into the Elijah stuff that we covered quite a bit earlier on in the year. And they see it as really um, a central part of their unique truth claims as the one true church. Mm -hmm. And now it should be said, um, baptisms for the dead weren't practiced in the Kirtland Temple. Yeah. So though it was instituted from before the foundation of the world in the first LDS temple where they had the Mormon Pentecost, event in the early 1830s this um hadn't been revealed and you don't see a baptismal font there yeah so it's not something that's consistently there but they'll they'll put that up to progressive revelation something like that right and um so i don't know if that <laughs> did all right i i know in the seminary manual they um and fr frankly a lot of the sources this is how they're trying to to frame the need for it mm-hmm is um, you have all these people that have never heard the name of Jesus, so how is that fair? Right. Therefore, um, God has provided a, basically a second chance vicariously, mm -hmm. and they see this as answering a deep problem with Christian theology generally. Yeah. There's different ways that they articulate it, yeah. but it all centers on that pull of the heartstrings. Yeah, and all of this relates to the genealogical work that they do right, mm -hmm. so they're they're trying to find the names of every person that's ever lived, yeah, so that that person can be 
uh, baptized, someone can be baptized in proxy for that person. Mm-hmm. Um, so e- even with that endeavor, I, I don't know how you're going <laughs> to, you're still going to miss a whole lot of people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so would, it, would they say that this was a practice uh, in uh, ancient, like in Israel? Yes. As well? Well, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They'll at least say the early church because of this verse. Yeah. And they'll say, this is evidence that, of course, that they are the, you know, uh, they they have the one true church and no one else does, right? So they um, will say that there's evidence of this here, and then they, they cite this really aggressive quote claiming also typography typology, which I'm like, okay, in typology, iconography and baptismal instructions that they have evidence that this was widespread and therefore the loss of it is part of the great apostasy. Um, and yet at the same time, they'll say going outside the New Testament, in the same section of the BYU New Testament commentary series, mm-hmm. they said going outside the New Testament to try and find references to vicarious baptisms for the dead also yields little useful information. And that's why they have a living prophet. That's why they <laughs> um, have revelation that fills the gap because obviously this verse would just generate debate inside a church that doesn't have the authority. In the seminary manual, they have a little section on this where they ask the questions, did members of Christ's church in New Testament times perform baptisms for the dead? And uh, they, they say, yes, uh, vicarious baptisms were performed only after Jesus was resurrected. Um, and uh, they'll say, you know, this was taught by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. Although other ancient texts attest that baptism for the dead was practiced by early Christians. No citation. So they definitely want to give the impression that this is um, a slam dunk for them. And, and it shows in the citation pattern. This is the most cited verse in all of Paul's writings. By, mm-hmm. by LDS leaders. Yeah. It's cited more than 70 times. That is, that's more than most, you know, half the chapters of first Corinthians. If you combined all the citations of all the verses in those chapters, it's not even close. Yeah. And so this, it makes this chapter the most cited, not for anything else other than, you know, the baptism for the dead thing. And then the three kingdoms thing as we're going to get to, but it's just so key to see the importance of this. Here's one quote from a recent uh, LDS president on its importance, just to show the the weight that this issue is given in in the LDS um, church, I think I think the vicarious work for the dead more nearly approaches the vicarious sacrifice of the Savior Himself than any other work of which I know. It is given with love, with without hope for compensation. Wait, I just want to be like, haven't you read Richard Lloyd Anderson? No gift comes without strings attached. Anyway, uh, or repayment or anything of that kind. What a glorious principle. Um, so, you know, how, how can participating in baptisms and other temple work for the dead help us become more like the Savior? And yeah, it is not just a principle for baptisms for the dead. Um, we, I don't know if we've covered this before, but all of the ordinances of the temple, you only perform once for yourself the first time you go through. And after that, you do it for the dead, you know, ancestors or ancestors that have been provided to the temple that they need um, someone to fill in for. Yeah. Which is interesting because the endowment ceremony. I just I don't I don't see how you would uh, not have your own self in mind each time that you mm-hmm. were walking through that. Right. Anyway, it's like a reminder or something. Right. Right. You know? But 
Yeah, that's uh, interesting. So uh, maybe a little bit on just uh, evangelical interpretation of this passage. So this is coming out of one verse, uh, really, that is in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 29 says, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead if the dead are not raised at all? Why are people baptized on their behalf? And uh, that's all you get. Mm-hmm. <laughs> one, one verse. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? Right. If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? So from a perspective of of uh, one who's you know read a decent bit on this verse, trying to figure yeah. out, okay, what, what is the meaning behind this? What's going on here? I just have to say, we don't know what's going on here. And scholars throughout the centuries have admitted we don't know what's going on here. And I know that LDS people eat that up and say, well, yeah, that's why you need a prophet who can restore things for you because you don't know what these things mean. Yeah, or it's also possible that you could take some of the most difficult verses in Scripture to interpret and twist them to fit an agenda that you want to have for a particular religious system. That's possible too. So the question is what, what, what is happening in the context of this verse? Why is Paul saying this in the first place? Not not being able to know exactly what's going on when it comes to the baptisms for the dead does not affect our ability to understand what Paul is trying to do when he's using that particular phrasing within the context of the passage. And that's something that the LDS curriculum does not even aim at understanding. Why is Paul even bringing this up within the flow of his argument? Paul is making an argument for the resurrection here. And all of this is tied to and connected to verse uh, 12 back in 15, where Paul says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So apparently there's people in the church in Corinth who are being led astray into this belief that there is no resurrection from the dead, and they're making this argument. I don't know if this is coming from the Sadducees or where what the source of this is, but there are some Christians who are apparently starting to say, oh, there's no resurrection from the dead. And Paul's saying, well, that's kind of a fundamental flaw in our whole gospel, because if you're saying there's no general resurrection, resurrection from the dead for all people, you can't have any confidence that Christ is resurrected from the dead. And so he is making an argument to show that there is, in fact, a resurrection from the dead. And one of the pieces of this argument is what he says in verse 29, why would, why would people be baptized on behalf of the dead if, there are, if people are not raised from the dead at all? And so you got to see it's in the flow of his overall argument. He's making an apologetic and so there's something that he is making reference to. We can't know what that something is, but that doesn't affect our ability to interpret the passage and understand, okay, apparently there was some sort of baptism for the dead that he is making reference to, and he's using that in the context to try to show everyone generally believes there's a there's a resurrection from the dead in some way, way shape, or form. And this is just part of his, his argument. And there's many other parts of the argument, too, that he's making. That's just one part of it that he's getting at, because he goes on in verse 30 to say, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. So you see he's making a whole argument to these Corinthian believers saying, you should believe in the 
resurrection from the dead. And so when we're interpreting the scripture, that's what we want to come to an understanding of is what is the context, what's going on here. Now, we also want to use wise interpretive principles when we're dealing with passages like this that are difficult to understand. And one thing that you ought to do when you come to a passage of scripture and it's difficult to understand is quickly determine on the basis of your knowledge of scripture what it does not mean. So what does this passage not mean? Well, it cannot mean that souls are going to have a second chance to repent and believe in the gospel after death. How do we know that? Because there's clear scripture, Hebrews 9.27, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. You die once, and after you die, there's the judgment. Or I can't remember if we covered, did we cover Acts 16? And uh, let me just read this for us. So, um, there's a passage of scripture in Acts 16, uh, verse 19 to 31, which is an example of this same biblical teaching that there's judgment right after death. And it's a story that Jesus tells to make it clear that we're judged for our earthly life uh, immediately after we die. And in the story, there's a rich man and a poor man. The rich man lives a life for himself. The poor man dies in humility and need. The rich man upon death goes to Hades where he suffers immediately. But the poor man in the story goes to the place of Abraham, which would have been kind of a holding place and a Jewish understanding for souls until the resurrection of the dead on the last day. But this story depicts the rich man begging Abraham to give him a second chance. And listen to how Jesus puts it in this story. Luke 16, 24 to 25. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may be able to cross from there to us. In other words, the moment you die, you're you're judged, and there is a chasm fixed that cannot be crossed. You're either in the blessing or you're under the curse upon death um, on the basis of whether or not uh, you've trusted in the promises of God. Um, so we know that whatever baptism of the dead was, it was not a way for people to have a second chance in the afterlife. And uh, that doesn't really even make sense within the context of the passage, that you've got to really eisegete that into the text to even get there. Now, secondly, the passage is not saying that baptism for the dead or even baptism for the living is necessary for salvation. Uh, that is obviously not being taught by Paul either because he is making uh, the claim that Jesus is the one who saves, right? I mean, that's the whole point of him preaching that little gospel piece that you already mentioned, Skylar, in verses 3 and and following. Uh, Chapter 15, verse 3, Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then uh, to the to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Lastly, as one untimely born, he appeared to me. So Paul is saying, this is the truth of the gospel that we are defending. Jesus died for sins. 
That's how your sins are dealt with. They are dealt with by Jesus dying for your sins and resurrecting in victory over them. That's what conquers. That's what deals with. That's what pays for your sins. So baptism is not and cannot be understood here as a way that we earn salvation. And uh, that's, of course, a fundamental teaching within the LDS Church. Baptism is necessary for salvation. You've got to Mm -hmm. do these works of baptism for salvation, and that's clearly contradictory to the very ideas that Paul is getting at in this passage. In fact, if I had backed up to just verses 1 and 2, chapter 15, Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved. You're being saved by the gospel. The gospel is what? It's what he goes on to say in verse 3 and following. It's what Jesus accomplished. It's not what we're accomplishing. And so you need to hold fast to the gospel that Paul preached is the point that he's making all throughout chapter 15. And the gospel he preached, of course, is a resurrected Christ. So we know then what he is not saying. He's not saying we do works to gain salvation for us or for anyone else. Um, Jesus is sufficient. So what is Paul talking about? Well, I hope you see by now, in one sense, it doesn't really matter what Paul is talking about. And uh, that that's kind of what I, I was trying to show there at the beginning. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's making this argument that Christ rose from the dead. That's his point. He really rose from the dead. It isn't a mythical story. It actually happened. He is alive. He he physically resurrected. And he's presenting an argument that the Corinthians would understand. Apparently, whatever it is that they knew, this would make sense to them. And so Paul is arguing something that makes sense to them about this point on baptisms for the dead. So what are these baptisms for the dead? Three main interpretive possibilities here. And I favor the third one, but you came in, Skyler, and started mentioning another one that you heard recently that's a more mm-hmm. recent interpretation that I actually has uh, yes, been stewing on a little bit. I'm like, hey, you know, that actually makes sense within the context somewhat. But here are the three possibilities of the baptisms for the dead. Some people say Paul's referring to a pagan ritual that was common in Corinth that would have uh, proved his point that people believe in the resurrection. So essentially, there's some pagan folk religious thing that was happening in that particular area, and people were participating in that ritual. Perhaps some of the Christians were even still participating in it, and Paul doesn't say it's wrong in and of itself. He's just using it as a means to argue his point here, which is that people generally believe there's going to be a resurrection from the dead. Even, even the pagans believe there's going to be a resurrection from the dead because they're doing this practice. And so people generally understand that this is a case. This is just one defense as to why you should believe that there's going to be a resurrection from the dead. That's what he could be saying to the Corinthians here. Now, contrast Contrary to what you just read from the LDS stuff, there is little to no evidence in the ancient world of baptisms like this. Uh, proxy baptisms, all the scholars I've read are like, there's there's little to no evidence. And so this is one of the least likely interpretations because you're really working off of a few possible allusions to baptisms for the dead that were happening in the in pagan religion in the area. There's absolutely no evidence of it happening in Judaism Judaism, um, or Jewish circles. And so it it would be a stretch. And I'd I'd be fascinated to hear if any scholars have come up with evidence. But all of the scholars I've read are like, there's no evidence that this is happening in the ancient world, except for a few possible illusions, which makes it difficult to grasp onto as the most likely interpretation in my view. The second possibility is that the Christians were actually baptizing the corpses of people who had believed the gospel but died before they could be baptized. So it could be that they're baptizing dead corpses that uh, that uh, were 
belonging to people who believed and weren't able. So like deathbed conversions, things like that. Um, that was actually the most common view of the early church fathers. Uh, you know, and I, I don't think that that's the most likely one either. The third interpretation that is the one that I tend to favor is that Paul is speaking of the living person as if they occupy a dead body. Um, so when you're baptized, you're being baptized in a body that will die. Paul refers to the body in Romans as a body of death. And so in that sense, you're being baptized on behalf of the dead body that you possess because you have hope in the resurrection of that body in Christ. So basically, the body that you now live in is a body that will die. So Christian baptism is baptism on behalf of your dead body in the hope that you're going to be resurrected to eternal life in a body that will not ever die. And I think that that interpretation uh, makes sense because Paul goes on to use uh, this sort of language in verse 30, the verse right after he says, we uh, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. So I think Paul is using this idea of death in kind of a metaphorical sense and not in a literal sense. So I, I think the point he has in mind is that there's a sense in which we are living in dead bodies. We are dying every day. And so when we're baptized on behalf of the dead, we're, 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 we're being baptized on behalf of our dead body in the hope that we're going to be resurrected to a new body. Now, you the interpretation you brought up as a fourth possibility sounds like it could be interesting, too, that, that perhaps there's some of the uh, competition between the apostles and teachers going on here, and uh, maybe there's uh, some claims being made by uh, by people saying, oh, I, got, I was baptized by this person, I was baptized by that person, and, and perhaps they are baptizing on behalf of of Christian leaders or apostles who've died. And that's who what they just mean. mentioned. Yeah. Who just mentioned. I'm like, well, that's, that sounds like that could be really possible too. So, right. you know, questioning the, the thing that they all testified of, which is the resurrection and yet still baptizing in their name. Yep. Yep. That's right. In part, not as a replacement in addition to yep. the typical baptismal formula. Yeah. That's interesting. But I think the point is it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. Right. Is this you know? issue in any of our creeds? No. Right. I mean, and it's funny, they will overlook teachings like the Shema in 1 Corinthians 8 yeah. or complicated into nothingness. Yep. And, but they will land on this and build a whole theology around it. And, and to show that, I mean, even just on its own terms, they have it differently, right? They, they, what is this a chance for? Exaltations. That's, that's their view. Yeah. You know, so <laughs> I think it's, um, there's an irony in, um, I mean, they don't have the same view of God. They don't have the same view of man. They don't have the same view of judgment. They don't have a hell. They, But, oh, right here, because of this one verse, they are the early church. Yeah. Here's Orson Pratt, who's an early LDS apostle we mentioned several times. And he, he lands on this verse and says this, the very fact that they were practicing baptism for those who were dead in order that they might receive a more glorious resurrection. Mm -hmm. So even then, right, in early Mormonism, they're using this first, but notice how this baptism is necessary for them to have a more glorious resurrection. That's nowhere in the text. Yep. So th this is, you know, th for for us, we take the more clear and then approach the more difficult. That's right. They take the difficult 
in proof text and system that never came from scripture in the first place. Mm -hmm. And, and cause it to become something that's really exciting because it's, it's a, it's that Gnostic sort of tendency of like, we've discovered the hidden thing. Yep. And we've got the key, mm-hmm. and uh, and so come to us because we can tell you the things that you always wanted to know, but you never could. Exactly, because it was concealed. And and uh, I can't remember if it's April DeConnick, but there is a scholar of Gnosticism that analyzes how they handle texts and calls them. I think it's cliff edges. Yeah. So you find some little phrase and imbue it with this entire thing, and then you say, "Hey, you want the real stuff? Come to my house Wednesday nights." Yep. Yep. Okay, so that's baptisms for the dead, which relates to the next topic because, of course, they're doing this work to try to attain a higher degree of glory. And yes. so why don't you take us into that yeah. uh, and how they use this this uh, chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, to talk about resurrected bodies and the kind of resurrected bodies that we'll receive. We've touched on this, but it's something that they highlight a lot in the seminary manual in particular this week, and they obvious, obviously use this chapter to build out that theology in their system too. So help us out there. Yeah, this this connects with their view of resurrection, where they see, uh, first they have to add, of course, Joseph Smith's translation of First Corinthians 15.40 is where it starts adding telestial and so <laughs> they'll be like, Paul is this and that. And you're like, wait, what? He doesn't mention telestial. But um, the, the idea is all will be resurrected. But based on the level of progression or worthiness, however you want, righteousness, obedience, whatever term you want to use to be a fill-in for not just works, but the type of person that would do those things, um, you will achieve on your merit the degree of glory that your body is resurrected in. And that degree of glory that you're resurrected in will reveal what kingdom you're going to belong to. Mm. So that's kind of how they they frame it. And um, so this is, listen to this, how they start the lesson. It's very telling. The lesson for the seminary manual is celestial, terrestrial, and telestial bodies. Why is it worth it to follow Jesus Christ, even if others appear to find happiness in sin? Paul explained one of the reasons by teaching the Corinthians about different degrees of glory in the resurrection. This lesson can help you strive to be worthy of a celestial resurrection through Jesus Christ. And now this is the, you know, sometimes they have this like object lesson to start the class. This one's called Future Blessings in God's Plan. Consider giving a treat to all students who happen to wear a certain color. Ask students who are not wearing that color if they would have wanted to know about this reward and how to earn it before they came to class. (laughs) If if you knew that your teacher was going to reward everyone who wore a certain color today, would that have affected your choice of clothing? Would you be upset if you learned about it after it was too late? Why or why not? Because Heavenly Father loves us, He has told us what happens after this life and which choices will lead to happiness or regret. Notice, happiness or regret, make it the therapeutic thing Mm -hmm. that you mentioned at the beginning. As you study the scriptures today, as if this is taught in the scriptures, look for truths that can motivate you to make choices that lead to eternal happiness. Mm -hmm. That's how they frame it. Yeah. So that whole, you know, fullness of the gospel being restored thing, this is (laughs) anti-gospel. And and that 
that that's what ties it all together, right? So as part of their activity, they're supposed to draw the plan of happiness, both the pre-mortal, mortal, and post-mortal expectations based on their system. Once again, with some proof text here and there, especially with Joseph Smith's correction. So the, it is... Um, why is it important to know the truth in Heavenly Father's plan? We'll, but we'll come back to drawing the plan. I just want to include this first. Thomas S. Monson, he was a recent LDS president, right? Um, he says this in a talk called The Race of Life. It is the celestial glory which we seek. It is in the presence of God, I would say God's, we desire to dwell. It is a forever family in which we want membership. Such blessings are earned through a lifetime of striving, seeking, repenting, and finally succeeding. Mm. See that? So, uh, yeah. And it, it's interesting, right underneath that, it asks, what is the Savior's role in our journey towards celestial glory? And that is a fantastic question. And yeah. I don't know what, what they would answer on that. Yeah. Because they, they want to say the atonement's necessary, but you look how it's played out, they lean a ton into just law. Yeah. impersonal law that Jesus himself couldn't have ultimately created himself, but has become what he is today, has progressed and advanced the state of glory in which he is today by following a law that hierarchically is higher than he. Mm -hmm. And um, they say, you know, what do we need to do to receive celestial glory? Why is receiving celestial glory rather than terrestrial and telestial worth the effort? And... Um, Ponder where you see yourself on the path. And, of course, the path that we're going to draw out, it's going to tie into our resurrection episode. And then they say at the very bottom, uh, not the very bottom, sorry, toward the bottom, can we really achieve celestial glory? Some people feel discouraged when they realize how they are, how far they are from living celestial lives on earth. Testify that it is worth the effort to prepare to receive a celestial body through Jesus Christ. Invite students to share what they learned with loved ones who need these truths. So, why? What? What are these blessings they keep saying? Well, they covered that in the resurrection episode, and we'll bring it here. Now, those that heard the resurrection episode that we did will already, you know, please go back and hear that first. That we're going to be building on that now, tying it to their cosmology and to their view of exaltations a little more specifically in terms of the the path that they want us to draw in this mm -hmm. lesson. So they lay it out, and I'm going to combine the lesson with David Ridges. So if you look at just one, remember, if I'm including some of the details, also Ridges, this is how they cover it. So you start with the order of the resurrection, and they, they draw from 1 Corinthians 15, every man in his own order. That's the, that's the proof text that there's an order to the resurrection. Yeah. Now, David Ridges goes out of his way to say, on this earth. On this earth. And in fact, his comment on verse 20 was, he was the first person from this earth to be resurrected. Why? He says, the reason we emphasize that Christ was the first person from this earth to be resurrected is that obviously, Heavenly Father was resurrected long ago. Before this earth was even created, I was going to say, ridges, organized. So he's going to say created. He means organized. And he had already had worlds without number, created by the sun before our earth was created, which have already passed away, Moses 1, 32-35. Thus, there were already countless resurrections in the universe before our earth was even created. 
Okay, so when it's the first fruits, they mean the first fruits of this earth, just as when you say, you know, who is God? Well, Heavenly Father is the God for this earth. So there's always some little phrase you got to add to make the system work mm. if you try to tie them to biblical language consistently. Well, here it is. So um, in the seminary manual, they have celestial, terrestrial, telestial, and then finally the, you know, sons of perdition, right, that we'll get to. Yeah. Ridges adds a, a couple more, and that's because, as you heard on the resurrection episode, that each resurrection has a morning and an afternoon. And think of it like a line, and the more, however righteous you are, you get closer to the front of the line. You earn your way and your place in terms of the front of the line. Well, the righteous, they are, of course, you have Jesus Christ first. But then you have the righteous, and this is this group, which talk about another tough passage that I didn't look closely at at all. They'll use the Matthew 27 passage, right, of the dead, and they'll say this is the first resurrection led by the Savior, and they would say that John the Baptist was included with those, and that these are all the people worthy of celestial glory from Adam to Christ. And that uh, you can see the qualifications for celestial glory at DC 76. I'll, I'll link to these in the show notes. The second group is the morning of the first resurrection. Now, this is the resurrection of the same quality, worthiness of celestial glory of people, but just from Christ's first coming to his second coming. Then you have this third group. Now we're getting into terrestrial. And these are those who um, are worthy for terrestrial glory. They are resurrected near the beginning of the millennium. Um, but after the celestials, not, I'm not kidding. David Ridges calls them the celestials, mm-hmm. uh, spoken of in the second section. It's a good book. So good is, book. That a, is that a fiction book title? A, <laughs> not really. Yeah. It might be. So this is the first time any terrestrials uh, have been uh, will have been resurrected. Now we're going to go to the telestial glory, right? And keep in mind, celestial sun, terrestrial moon, telestial. Now we're to the stars, right? Oh, Marvel. Bro. Yeah. Bro, yeah. it's a Marvel thing. It is. The celestials. But, is there? <laughs> Dude, check it out, man. Marvel wow. database. The celestials are space gods. Oh, hold on a minute. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, the celestials created by the first firmament, witnesses to the birth of all. They watch each civilization and primordial to the transcendent. They test, they prod, they observe. The celestials are powerful cosmic beings created by the first firmament. They rebelled against the creator, uh, but they're involved in the creation of new universes. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the celestials visit planets and what is known as <laughs> celestial hosts to experiment on to judge lower life forms. <laughs> Do they have a second series called the Terrestrials? Uh, they got the they create Eternals and Deviants. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> Sorry. No, you're good. I think that that's actually. I think they're in the new. I think they're actually coming out with some movies on the Celestials. Wow. Well, we know who came first. Anyway, uh, yeah. So I can't even remember where I was. Mar- Marvel, was it, Marvel's about to get sued, man. Yes, <laughs> no, totally. David Ridges, this is a lawsuit idea. Um, 
So, yeah, we got terrestrials, and now we're going down to telestials. And this is the first time they get uh, resurrected. They have to wait till after the millennium's over, though, right? Now, born on Earth, who then become sons of perdition, they're the very last. Mm -hmm. And they're the ones who will experience the second death. So the first death, of course, is your physical body. Now, keep in mind, we haven't covered this in detail yet. You have, and there's some differences in terminology, but conceptually, this is Mormonism. You have an intelligence that's always existed. Is he as eternal as the intelligence that's in God's body? Okay. Now, eventually, you advance to the point where you get a spirit body, and then you advance to the point where you get a physical body, and then those of us who have physical bodies are advancing in glory to become gods if we're righteous and worthy and smart enough. And yes, knowledge is a key to exaltations. That was a prominent early Mormon teaching. So the, the idea of the sons of perdition receiving the second death is the spirit body dying. But that doesn't mean that, first off, there's no hell, as we're going to get to. But it just means they're reduced back to the intelligence. So they're going down the stairs instead of up the stairs. So that's key to know that Mormonism, in, in Christian theological terms, is necessarily and essentially trichotomous. The, tr the three parts, as is Kenneth Copeland. But anyway, um, so the... Uh, now, to, to go back over why, you know, why all this emphasis on, like, you want to make sure you're celestial, like, don't you worry, like, don't mm -hmm. you... It's First off, um, in early Mormonism, of course, there's advancing between the kingdoms, right? Um, which is more philosophically consistent. If you think of how they value agency, you wonder how God could ever be a limiting factor in someone's progression. Mm -hmm. And early Mormons saw this in endless progression. And by the way, they didn't just emphasize three kingdoms. But now that they've had this, uh, you know, kind of stopping point between the kingdoms, the consequences of one life meaning this one for them, and where you end up in the kingdom. You can progress within that kingdom, but you have eternal ramifications. So a celestial body still can procreate, mm -hmm. stays married, and, of course, um, it stays in a family relationship. As Monson said, families forever. And uh, the power of increase, the power of nature to live as husbands and wives, that's all preserved. But once you get down into terrestrial and telestial, there's no procreation. That's like the worst thing ever. Oh my gosh. You will not be able to procreate. Yeah. You cannot be married. You are separate and singly forever. Uh, power of procreation is removed. You know, like a dog, mm -hmm. you fix. You're fixed. So you can't have kids. We don't want you spreading, spreading that, you know, uh, deviant DNA in the cosmos. We don't yep. want you wreaking havoc in the universe. Yep. Only celestials get to create worlds. So they will just not have the same capabilities. Mm -hmm. So that that's they are tying this into the resurrection passage. And then just one detail that I already said, but just make sure you caught it. You don't know what glory ultimately you're going to be in until you see the type of body you have. So it's like a game, right, where you have the reveal at the very end. It's like, oh, I have a celestial body. I got celestial glory. Yep. Right? And so, you know, ultimately, the, the you can see now why it makes so much sense to emphasize worthiness and yeah. obedience oh, and yeah. knowledge in this system, right? So why do I keep bringing up this hell point? Because it's not there. Um, so this, 
this, uh, and so if you hear an LDS using hell, they mean it metaphorically. They don't, they don't mean it actually place of burnings and conscious torment, mm-hmm. let alone eternal. Now, here's part of the, the irony with that is that the Book of Mormon does have it. So here's one where I am going to bring up the Book of Mormon. Mm-hmm. So here I've got this chart in Preach My Gospel, the one I used, and it has pre-mortal life. You've got, of course, a pre-mortal council. You have the creation, they say, it's organization, the fall, really the descent. Then you have earth life, and they, they list faith in Jesus, repentance, baptism, gift of the Holy Ghost, endure to the end. Then you have physical death. Then you have the spirit world. You have this temporary middle space where there's paradise, and then there's prison. And now to some, to be fair, some LDS leaders in the past, there was a part of the prison that was like a purifying fire. Uh, Sandra Tanner's hilarious. She calls this Mormon purgatory. Mm-hmm. And this is where you're purged of your sin, and then we'll figure out what to deal with you. Yeah. Uh, but it's a temporary thing anyway. And uh, so this spirit world, and then the resurrection and the judgment happens, right? And then the basically the resurrection is the judgment, and whatever body you have will determine which kingdom you're in, telestial being the stars, the lowest, terrestrial being the likened to the moon or the middle, or celestial, the sun at the top. And, and so that's, that's their system. But in the Book of Mormon, it's very different. You have heaven and hell, right? And some of this, I think, is inspired by debates that are happening in Joseph Smith's day, right? He was surrounded by universalism. This is a time of universalists are writing pamphlets, giving sermons, saying that sin did not deserve endless punishment. Uh, hell is a bugbear. Satan is a non-entity, depending on how extreme the universalist was. But at the end of the day, all will ultimately be saved. And that, you know, how could a God of love punish men endlessly? We know that Joseph Smith, at 21 years old, lived with a family of universalists. In fact, his dad probably might have was at one time a member of the Universalist Society. So we know universalist pamphlets were in his area. And yet, in the Book of Mormon, we see Smith being partial to Methodism coming out, and he was for a season. Uh, in the Methodist-Presbyterian debates, he sided with the Methodists. And so the Book of Mormon, interestingly, does not support universalism. Um, and it, now it is weird that in an ancient white Native American uh, civilization, they're debating exactly what Joseph Smith was hearing debated in his time, right? Uh, based on biblical categories that were non-existent in ancient America. Yep. But the, the f- fact of the matter is, though, in the Book of Mormon, uh, you have eternal punishment that says eternal is the life of the soul. And in fact, only the devil says there is no hell in 2 Nephi 28, all this. And yet, and yet, within the year of the publication of the Book of Mormon, you have an 1830 revelation, DNC 19, uh, that was given to a guy named Martin Harris, who is fundamental in the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, uh, one of the witnesses thereof and all that, that says that it is not written there shall be no end to this torment in which uh, eternal punishment no longer means eternal. It just means, it's like for emphasis, but it has an end. And from then on out, we see Smith belittling hell, saying, oh, we go to hell, we'll turn it into heaven, whatever. Um, And from there, we have a very mixed message. So John Woodso, who I'm going to bring up, uh, a couple times, if I don't get to him, I'll put it in the show notes. He's he's one of the more interesting LDS apostles. He literally says in, in one of his writings, in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and it does say the full name, there is no hell. Mm-hmm. 
This is an LDS apostle, one of the most important at the turn of the going into the 20th century. There is no hell. All will find a measure of salvation. The gospel of Jesus Christ has no hell in the old proverbial sense. Now remember, Christofferson in the manual said because of Jesus Christ's resurrection, we know heaven and hell are real. Where is hell on your charts, Christofferson? Where is it? Your predecessor said there is no hell. And uh, once again, the, the closest thing you can find to it is actually not hell. It's this like Mormon purgatory in spirit prison where the wicked are just purified. So, <laughs> you, by the way, you can even see this in Deed C-76. So in 1832, a passage they're citing all over the place because it shows the qualifications for each degree of glory and each uh, level of resurrection. Um, in the 1832 version, it does talk about punishment being throughout eternity, and it talks of eternal sufferings. And Sandra caught this. Yet in the published version today, it took out throughout eternity and turned it into in eternity twice. Hmm. And it took out the term eternal so that it just says sufferings. Yeah. It doesn't say eternal suffering. So even in the 1832 version, published version of DNC 76, you see that the universalism hadn't taken over yet. Mm. But it's, I don't know how it's not there now. Because you say, okay, well, okay, let's talk about these sons of perdition then. In the manual, in the manual, it says the sons of perdition at the very end, right, will receive no degree of glory, but will return again to their own place. That's what it says in the seminary manual. Yeah. For ridges, just then became sons of perdition, cites the scriptures. So this is one example where the seminary manual is a little more clear than Ridge's. Well, what was the early Mormon teaching on this? Once again, keep in mind the trichotomous stuff, right? Let's say you're now rejecting knowledge and being so disobedient to the, not to God personally, like it is, but because he's in harmony with natural law. Really, it's to the laws of the universe, right? To the point where, you, you know, you're rejecting the light that you need to operate. Well, you'll get the second death, and then what? Well, if you continue to rebel and you don't change your mind, right, you will start to uh, basically dissolve and go back to the primitive intelligence and maybe even further to the matter within which it came from. And now for those that don't know this, and in, in at least this form of Mormon theology that's a lot more in line with the uh, early stuff, um, though, you know, there's a lot of people who don't pay attention to this anymore. Um, the idea was intelligent. Everything that exists has intelligence in it. Everything. Mm -hmm. um, this is why Jesus can turn water into wine. He just speaks and the, all the intelligences, because they respect Jesus, obey. Mm -hmm. The power of God, the gods come from below in Mormonism. It's not some transcendent thing above, within, and the foundation of or anything like that. We're all in this cosmos. They trust him, so they follow him, and they just kind of scientifically change. And and so that one of the priesthood or uh, powers that the gods have is to, uh, in as Brigham Young said, to capacitate matter for intelligence to basically lead intelligences that are originally from this chaotic matter. Yeah. That that of course precedes anything organized, and you get to lead it into becoming more and more intelligent. Yeah. So that that's a priesthood power, and Brigham Young said to to fight it. You're going to, um, of course, lose that intelligence ultimately and be thrown back into the chaos that came before. So if, if I were to 
Um, I mean, I, there's tons I could read. Just one from Brigham Young, just a paragraph. The rebellious will be thrown back into their native element, there to remain myriads of years before their dust will again be revived, before they will be reorganized. Some might argue that this principle would lead to the reorganization of Satan and all the devils. I say nothing about this, only what the Lord says, that when he comes, he will destroy death and him that has the power of it. So, but it cannot be annihilated. Remember, you cannot annihilate matter. You can't annihilate this ultimately. Now, it can become so disoriented and unintelligent that it's just chaos. But this, notice it says, go back where it came. Let's see, what's the exact wording here? Return again to their own place. Uh, this is what's going to happen to the sons of perdition, which, by the way, according to some interpretations, will include me. Yeah. Um, return again, meaning it originally came from chaotic matter. And now it's going to return to it. And once again, Brigham Young and all of, all of, sorry, not all, I shouldn't say all, but many of the early general authorities believe that they just weren't allowed to teach um, based on DNC 2929, right? Never at any time have I declared from my own mouth that they should return. But it doesn't mean that they won't. Yeah. And um, so it's you, theoretically possible right. that another celestial being could choose to organize yeah, the go, matter again. Yeah, take them up and choose to give them another chance if they want. And, yep. Right, because just as nothing began in the sense of being actually created, what we mean by creation, you can't destroy either. Yeah. Right, they, they take that matter can either be created nor destroyed. Your intelligence is no different. Yep. Like it's impossible to annihilate. And of course, based on their system, it, God wouldn't be able to eternally punish somebody. Yeah. Especially based on his will. Yep. Let alone theirs. Yep. So it's all about cause and effect, natural consequence. And that is key to see that that's what ties all of this together, right? Is Jesus's resurrection is yet another opportunity in this stage of creation, in this course of existence to progress beyond where we were before. Yeah. When I was a uh, kid, used to play... Uh, Basketball a good bit, as we've talked about on the podcast. And we um, used to every once in a while have the little brothers show up. And, of course, all the you know big kids would be playing the game and enjoying the game. And then there would always be that the, the little brother that would arrive on the scene. And, you know, maybe at first we'd try to include him, say, you can play too. But then the kid would grab the ball and just run away. Just like out of bounds down the street, <laughs> and you're just like standing there watching them. Why? Why are you? Why are you running? Like th this is not how the game is played. And we all know intuitively that the rules help us to enjoy the game. So we need boundaries. You need. Mm -hmm. You you can't have an endless expanse of basketball court. You you need to have a set fixed area. And you say the game is played within this court. And you go and you enjoy the game within the court. Well, that's how God's revelation works. God revealed himself in, insofar as we need to know. And we enjoy the game within the court that God has created in the revelation that he has determined to show to us. And the reason I bring all that up is because when it comes to the matter, particularly of our glorified state, uh, we don't know a lot. Now, here's the thing. We could pick up the ball and run 
we, we could run as far as we wanted to run with our imaginations on what it's going to be like, but we would be breaking the rules and, mm-hmm. and violating the, the game because God just hasn't revealed these different things. And there are evangelical Christians that have fallen off the deep end on this stuff as well with various books that have been written about people have died, gone to heaven, seen things, things like that. I'm like, well, you don't need that. And it's dangerous to go there. Uh, Paul is warning against these sorts of desires for these extra revelations and spiritual experiences in the book of Colossians in particular that I'm preaching t- through right now. But the reality is we, we don't know exactly what the glorified state is going to be like. The best thing we can do is look at the resurrected Christ as being the one who was raised into this spiritual body. Again, we're not talking about uh, the eternal God, the second person of the Trinity, in terms of we're going to be like him. No, we're talking about the incarnate Christ. We're talking about the embodied Christ. There's going to be some sense in which we are brought into his image in a perfect sense, uh, his uh, his second Adam image when we uh, die and are resurrect. And that state is going to be a glorious state. And that's what Paul is stretching to explain in, uh, in this part of 1 Corinthians is, all believers that are raised in Christ are going to be raised into these resurrected bodies, and the resurrected bodies are not going to be perishable bodies the way that our bodies now are. Um, Adam brought everybody in death. Christ is a life-giving spirit. When we're resurrected in him, we will have life in a way that we don't know now because we're in bodies of death. And so we're going to be resurrected to bodies that are beyond our imagination right now. And I don't think that we even need a stretch to imagine what that's going to be like. We just wait and we see, and we'd be content with what God has revealed in his scriptures thus far. But the one thing I want to highlight, and then I'll turn it over for last things, but we, we are at the, the end of our time here, okay. is the means by which we attain this glorification. And Paul makes this so abundantly clear. And this is why in our gospel, we have hope. We're not striving and striving and striving with an uncertain hope, like we might not get there. We, we may do all this for nothing. We may end up not being good enough in the end. No, we strive in Christ because we have confidence that in Christ we will be glorified. And that's the whole point of what Paul is trying to get at. This whole chapter in 1 Corinthians 15 is saturated with gospel truth. And he even says things like in verse uh, 40 or 51, he says, um, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And uh, that's a that's a certain guarantee, a promise for all who are in Christ. You're going to be changed. You're going to be changed on the last day. Um, but then he goes on to say this in verse 53, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where's your victory? O death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But listen to this. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not through our own efforts, not through our own ability, not through our own righteousness, through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have a hope that we will 
one day see the end of death altogether because of Jesus. And so our trust, our hope, our faith is in him. And that's what Paul is trying to to put the Corinthians' minds on. Look at Jesus. He's your hope of the resurrection. He, he's your hope of everything that's to come, of all your future. All, all of it is in him. He's conquered death. He's the one who resurrected. You will resurrect in him. Will. These are your guarantees for the, the one who is in Christ by faith. And, uh, and so it's not about our own, our own doing. It's about what Christ has done. What you right. got, Skylar? Okay. A couple loose ends. Do it. I just wanted to show for those that think, man, I must be misinterpreting that view of the sons of perdition. Even John A. Winslow, in this book from 1940s that I mentioned at the start, he said, President Brigham Young has suggested that the ultimate punishment of the sons of perdition may be that they, having their spiritual bodies disorganized, must start over again, must begin anew the long journey of existence, repeating the steps that they took in the eternities before the Great Council was held. Showing, you know, I, I know they'll be like, suggest, but anyway, that's yep. there. And once again, to just show that it's not just me saying this, Brigham Young didn't just stop at three kingdoms. And of course, there was progression through the kingdoms there. Even Hiram Smith, Joseph Smith's brother, said that's why it's like the moon, which waxes and wanes. You're either going to go down or go up, right? Yeah. And sometimes you'll have someone up high come down to help lift others up. And that's one of their views of Jesus. Brigham Young said there are millions of such kingdoms. There are as many degrees of glory as there are degrees of capacity. So that's not just me. That's Brigham Young. Now, the, at the very bottom, and I left this... Uh, for the end, and I, I do have one more comment after this one, but just because I, I want to fit it in. It's a historical point that's important, but not the most important thing. It, it, when they say, what if we strive to live faithfully in this life, but are still imperfect when we die? Um, they cite the King Follett Discourse, which I've put in the show notes, I think, every episode that speaks of climbing a ladder. You begin at the bottom. Let me just read this paragraph. When you climb up a ladder, you must begin at the bottom and ascend step by step. This is Joseph Smith. Until you arrive at the top. And so it is with the principles of the gospel. You must begin with the first and go on until you learn all the principles of exaltation. But it'll be a great while after you have passed through the veil before you will have learned them. Showing he thinks it's not just you're resurrected and then that's it. Yep. Um, it is not all to be comprehended in this world. It'll be a great work to learn our salvation and exaltation, even beyond the grave. There's no night that cometh where no man can work, like Jesus says in John 9. So um, I do think that's interesting that they put that at the bottom with that question in the the lesson for this. One point, they, t they take the flesh and blood uh, point and make it a point about blood. This is Remember that Joseph Fielding Smith quote you read in an episode, earlier episode? Mm -hmm. That's not just him. They have there's this Nelson quote that's unbelievable uh, that says um, really quickly by the shedding of his blood. This isn't a talk called the atonement. His and our physical bodies could become perfected. They could again function without blood, just as Adam's and Eve's did in their paradisiacal form. Paul taught that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Therefore, this mortal must pass on immortality. So. Uh, you know, they think part of the atonement is purifying of the blood. Now, this impulse that we saw throughout the, the baptisms for the dead, um, it reminds, and once again, Roman Catholicism, they have the Trinity. They have the scriptures. I don't think they're faithful enough to them. They have Christology. 
and then they've unfortunately rejected the gospel. Mm-hmm. Okay. That being said, notice the same human impulse to fall in human heart. And doesn't this, this idea of like, well, you got to give them more of a chance, this idea remind you of, in a sense, what Luther's reacting to yeah, with purgatory and indulgences. Now, the difference, of course, would be, and most, most people get this wrong, purgatory is only for the saved. In other words, there's nobody that goes from hell and up into purgatory mm-hmm. in Roman Catholic theology. Purgatory is to purge the saved who have not, right, are not fit yeah. for heaven yet. Yeah. And indulgences and other suffrages were there not to pay for the guilt, but to pay the penalty. So there's a sense in which you could participate in easing the penalty for sin. Only God could pay for guilt. Anyway, a lot of people get that wrong. My point is this. Whenever we hear the apostasy narrative, and I'm sure you've come across this, where LDS will lean into the Reformation and then just say we were a more pure form of it because they didn't have the priesthood authority. You needed a, right? These were primitivists that needed a supernatural revelation. These aren't the form of primitives that will just go to the New Testament text and try to recreate the early church. Right. Um, And so there's an irony in them claiming Luther as part of their story for um, the restoration, Mm -hmm. when in fact, and this isn't just me that said it, none other than the LDS General Authority, B.H. Roberts said it, that the Reformers left more truth in Rome than took out. Yeah, And I just want to point out that irony that how many times in apologetics, Ted Callister and all that, they've used the Protestant polemic, typically a very superficial form of it, to argue historically about the need for restoration, not reform, but restoration. And yet, when they argue for baptisms for the dead... They're arguing based on this desire to connect the living and the dead in an unscriptural way that had corrupted the church in the Middle Ages, from which we need a reform. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a point that, that's why I'm here. This is the kind of point that I think would often get neglected on a subject like this, but it came to mind, and I'm not the first to see this. I'll put more stuff in the show notes, including another debate um, that we didn't have time to get into. Yeah. Well, fun stuff. We're on to Second Corinthians next week so we'll see you for that second corinthians one to seven be ye reconciled to god is the subtitle we'll see you then